Welcome to Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Papp, and for the last decade plus, I've been working with innovators and leaders inspire others to take action. My goal with this podcast is to give you practical, tactical advice that you can use now. Whether you're scaling a company, leading a new team, or advocating for meaningful change, this show is designed to help you make a positive impact with those who count. So let's learn together and have some fun along the way. Let's get to it. I love Ashley Welch. She is the co-founder of Somersault Innovation. They do design thinking for sales teams, but for many different high-performing teams. We have worked together, and she is also the co-author of a fantastic book that I recommend everybody check out, which is called Naked Sales. It's a great read, very useful resource. My first question to you, Ashley, Hmm. what is Naked Sales? Thank you. And hello. Hello. We, of course, chose the title because it was provocative. But what it really is all about is really showing up with curiosity and vulnerability in a sales situation and stripping away, getting rid of uh, sort of all the preconceived notions, your checklists and all the things you think you're supposed to come armed with when you engage a customer and really to strip back to your best curious empathic self and show up in an authentic way. One of the things you bring is this design thinking. And I think for many people, they've heard it, they can sort of appreciate it. But can you explain in your perspective, what is design thinking and why does it matter for people building quality relationships? Yeah. So design thinking, I think of as just a recipe for innovation. It's like a process or it is a process. Think of agile, Six Sigma, lean. All of these are different processes. Design thinking is another one, tends to have five stages and a bunch of tools that go along the way in order to help a group innovate or solve a problem. So it's problem solving process. And what's different about design thinking is it's like ruthlessly focused on the end user or the customer. So it's a customer-centric process, which means instead of you and I coming up with our best ideas for how to solve a solution, we would first look at who we were trying to solve for and really go deep in terms of understanding them and using what we learn about them to help us address the problem. And so words like customer centricity, curiosity, empathy, uh, fail fast, prototype, co-creation, all of these sort of terms came out of the design thinking world. So people may not have heard of design thinking, but you've probably heard of all those words and you know more about design thinking than you think. Can you talk about those five steps? And then I want to talk about why design thinking is important today. Yeah. So the first step is, if I was to make it really simple, is really empathizing with your end user, like I said. So let's let's just use a very simple example. I was like, let's say I was going to make a glass because I think I have a better cup idea. The first thing I would do is sort of investigate and really understand my end user, you who would be drinking and all the other people who drink and really get to know them. So that's sort of the empathy step. And then I'm deriving insights from what I've learned that, oh, wait a second, I noticed that 60% of the people or 75% of the people that I observe are drinking between these hours. And like, what is that? So like, it's something interesting that I learn about them that helps me sort of reframe the problem or opportunity. And then I'm coming up with a solution 
a, the, to test, basically. I'm prototyping something very small to test and get feedback with you. So my new cup that I might've come up with, I'm going to test and say, hey, Stuart, I have this small prototype. I know it's just a piece of clay, but how would you engage with that? Can you give me some feedback on that? And then I iterate from there and keep working towards creating the final solution. So I'm not coming forth with one thing, one and done. I'm coming forth with small incremental changes to the idea until I get it right. And the reason you use design thinking is you're more likely to delight your end customer and you decrease risk of failure. What does someone do if they want to use these processes, but they may not have the ability to innovate you know, a product or they have a product that's already been built or designed, or it's a multi-million or billion dollar product? What can design thinking do to turbocharge the relationships with the end user? Yeah, such a good question. Well, I think of design thinking more than anything is a mindset of customer centricity. Two things, customer centricity and co-creation. And I think just that idea of how do I stay really focused on who my end customer is and what they care about as I go forth in my process, whatever it may be, and how do I actually engage them to co-create or work with me in creating the end solution goes a long way. So whether you're in HR and you're working with uh, employees around comp or you know time off, whatever it is, you can work with your end user and think differently about how you're engaging them, whether you're creating a product or you're in sales and you're working with a customer. Being customer-centric and thinking about ways to co-create with that end user, that's, that's design thinking in and of itself. For me, co-creation is involving the other entity, whether it's an individual, team, organization, in actually creating the solution or solving the problem with you versus uh, one way, like I'm going to solve it and give it to you. Like you think about your children who don't want to eat something at night. If I just push the plate forward and say, eat this, I am not sort of co-creating the end game here. And they are much more likely to resist versus I say, hey, to dinner night, we have five different items. Why don't you come forth and make your plate or make your taco or make your salad? You put on it what you'd like. They're much more willing to engage and eat that food. So that would be creation in a very simple way. So if I just get this right, the design thinking process is really putting the customer at the center of the conversation. You mentioned curiosity, and I want to talk about that. We've talked about co-creation, which is really involving them in the decisions and helping build something or getting their opinion, getting their thoughts and reflecting that back in a meaningful way. Can you still co-create with someone if, you're, if your hands are sort of bound by the rules or the strict guidelines under which you have to conduct business? Well, that's a complicated question because we'd have to talk about specific scenarios. Let's say right now I'm in the midst of a procurement process and there's a person who's sort of, I, I've uh, you know created the proposal with them. Now I'm waiting for them to sign off on it. There's a person sort of in the middle of both of the customer and me trying to navigate this. I even think about how do I co-create with him, which would mean call him regularly and say, hey, what do you need from me? Uh, is there anything actually that you would suggest for me that I do differently in this process? What's your advice to me? You know, like getting him involved in how we're navigating this for me is co-creation at its like at its smallest level. So I think for all of us, just asking the question, like how could I be co-creating or in 
involving the other group individual in this process, that thought experiment, I think is helpful. And you will come up with something. Talk to me about how listening factors into co-creation. Well, of course, it's like the foundation of understanding what would be meaningful to the other person. So if we go back to my glass example, the way I become most innovative in what I might create for you, my end user, is really listening to you to understand not only what you might tell me, but trying to decipher sort of underlying underlying needs or motivations. And in order to really understand that, I have to listen really well. And I think, you know, there's this term active listening, which isn't just hearing, but then engaging with you saying, tell me more, you know, it's that curiosity piece of the listening that like I'm, I'm withdrawing or drawing out of you more information and even things that you might not have thought about so that we both get smarter in the process. And I think you need all of that fodder in order to co-create well, because otherwise I don't really know what you care about. So if someone's new or they're want to start with co-creation and they don't even know where to begin, what would be an actionable step that they could start practicing right away to start to build that muscle? One thing I would think about as an action is how do I push myself to involve the other side actually sooner than I would have thought? So I think, you know, what you said in the beginning, we work with sellers most often, right? And so sellers are always thinking about how do I engage my prospect or my customer in a way such that they will buy, right? And the I think the bias is like, I have to have it all together before I engage them, or I have to know everything about their business before I will engage them. And I we're always pushing the people we work with to say, no, inv- involve them even earlier. Like you might not know, know the answer completely or whatever you're going to propose completely, but by involving them and even saying, I don't have this all put together, but I'd love your input on this piece, they start to feel involved and connected and you know their fingerprints are starting to be put on it. So I would say, think about what is a way to actually involve the other entity sooner than you might even be comfortable with. Do you have an example of co-creation in process? Yes. I, this is a new story that I just heard and we call it the call Scott story. And if uh, you remind me later, I've just written this up so I can attach it to this podcast. So tech seller we'd been working with in the past, I reconnected with, and he said, you know what? I want to tell you that the methodology that I learned from you five, six years ago, helped me secure the largest deal that I've ever had. And you know, one of the large deals that our company has had, this is a tech firm you've all heard of. And the way he thought about it is he thought, you know, I have to think about always staying curious, customer-centric and co-creating right from the get-go, just like you're talking about. So the story is that he was given this large manufacturing company as his client. He had all the dealerships in addition to the manufacturer. The largest dealer was in Texas. And so he started what was a co-creative process, which is he spoke to the CIO. He knew that there was a digital transformation on the horizon. He said to her, hey, will you engage with me in this co-creative process? And this is what the process is going to look like. I need 30 minutes with each of your executives. Then I'm going to go out into the field and I'm going to talk to a lot of people. And then I'm going to come back to you and your executives and I'm going to tell you what I've learned. And you're going to offer me your insights. 
and anything else you think I need to learn, I'm going to go back out again, get more information, and then come back to you again. And then we're going to start to talk about the solution. And I want you to start to give me a sense of what you think about it. And then I'm going to go back, take that feedback. I'm going to iterate and I'm going to come back to you again. And he got the CIO to say, okay, three hours of my executive's time to think about the next 10 years of digital transformation. That's worth it for me. Go ahead, do this. So he got her to say yes, which his colleague said to him, as soon as they say yes to this process, the deal is done. You don't know how big the deal is, but it's done because they're invested with you. So that's sort of like the big notion of co-creation in terms of engaging your customer right from the beginning. And then the story I was thinking about is one of, he went down talking to the dealers in the South. He's sitting next to one of them talking about um, servicing equipment. And the guy says, uh, well, I just got this intake. I need to you know, set up the service on this piece of equipment. And Matt said, well, I have this, you know, it's in my schedule. It says call Scott. So I got to call Scott. And Matt said like, what do you mean? Call Scott is your, your system for maintaining equipment. He's like, yeah, you know, I just got to call the guy who has the piece of equipment. And he said, well, why don't you just go, go to where it is? He's like, cause I don't know where it is. This is not GPS enabled. I got to call Scott for Scott to tell me. So Matt took a picture of this thing that said call Scott on his computer and took it into the executives when he came back and said, basically, you know, this is an image of your service system. It's call Scott. And so, of course, they were embarrassed, but in a way that said like, geez, you know, let's talk about how we can transform this with a a digitally enabled system to help us be more effective. So Matt would say the only reason he got to that sort of end user story was like getting in, keep asking why, saying, what, what does this mean? Call Scott. And what if Scott's not there? And all these things that were revealed by getting super curious and then bringing that back in a respectful way to the executives he was working with to say, hey, let's talk about this situation. How can we help you be more effective and maintaining equipment and satisfying your customers? It's a wonderful story. And and three things jump out at me. Number one, how prescriptive he was being telling everyone, this is how we're going to make it better. Yes. The second thing was just really sitting in that curiosity and asking more whys and understanding. And then the third was actually presenting the problem in a way that was obvious now to them about the need for change. And and I heard this yesterday that no one wants to be changed, but everyone is willing to change. They just don't want to be changed. And and I think about that with influence that, you know, you don't convince anyone of anything. They convince themselves. It seems like your process is perfectly set up to have people look at the data, look at their behaviors, look at the what's happening and arrive at the conclusions And therefore, they're more powerfully connected to the solution. Exactly. And that's the whole thing, right? And uh, one thing I always think about is this idea that end user stories are gold. I don't care if you're selling or doing anything else. Like if you can get up close to your end user, in this case, I don't know the gentleman's name, the service person, and sit with them or talk to them and get a story about them that you then bring back. Like you just said, people are like, well, I can't argue with that. And now it's sort of in my face. And let's talk about that. I'm much more likely to engage with you than if you just, you know, either use a use case or just tell me something that's not relevant to me. 
it seems like one of the things that underpins this process, Ashley, is that essence of curiosity. And it reminds me of a quick anecdote that when Sony was rolling out the Walkman in the 1980s, they asked a group of kids, you know, which color do you prefer this yellow or black? And they all said, oh, yellow. And then at the end, they said, now you're welcome to take a free one as a thank you for participating. And they all chose black. So they were like, oh, there's a disconnect between what they're saying and what they're doing. And that's why a focus group or just a survey doesn't get you the best data because a focus group, I've got a lot of people in the room, right? I don't necessarily get up close to one individual and make them comfortable in just telling me what they think. A survey, I mean, forget about it. You ask me one question, I answer it any way I feel. Honestly, just in a mediocre way because I want to get through the survey or I say anything we say, there's always like six things underneath it. Like you don't get to those six things in a survey. And so this notion of asking why and tell me more and what does that remind you of reveals these underlying interests and motivations that sometimes the individual doesn't even know themselves. Yeah. That's another piece of gold because then you're like, oh my God, you don't know that. I mean, did I just discover something that actually applies to a lot of people that I can leverage? Why is this such a a driving force for you, this curiosity and co-creation? I think because I was naturally born curious, fortunately. And so it's part of my DNA and is comes naturally and easily to me. And therefore, what I've seen over my life is that it really is the root of how I create deep relationships or how I have even created my company. And therefore, a lot of goodness comes out of that curiosity and also my own like understanding and learning. I'm like so clear that I I don't learn enough about another person or a subject without going deeper and deeper. And every time I do, I'm like, geez, I never would have known all that. Or I think totally differently about this now. I mean, these are all such obvious things, but it just gets revealed to me every day. So it feels like it's had a very positive impact on me and my life. And, and also you said yesterday to me, this idea of curiosity sort of transforming ourselves, like just the nature of curiosity, transforming how we feel and show up in the world. And I think that's right. It's just sort of, there's some positive energy that comes with curiosity. I agree. I got this advice was replace negative thoughts with curiosity and just see what happens. And even a hack being, if you narrow your eyes, you're focused, which is good for solving problems, but opening your eyes can be a cue to remind you to stay aware of collecting more information and being more open. So I'm actually more even aware of just behaviors, but I can't help but think about it. How can you encourage someone who's got a different mindset? Maybe they're more focused on, you know, data or problem solving or building things, and they may not have that curious mindset. What would you say to them or how would you encourage them to start building those skills? I think with anything for any of us, I'd say, just try it. Try like, you know, the idea of design, like try a little little, teeny thing and see if see what happens and sort of what feedback you get. And so I would say, try it, try it at home, try it with your child, try it with your partner, try it with someone. People always, after working with us, will be like, I just tried this at the Starbucks. You know, I, someone who's giving me my drink and I just asked a question and then I asked another and what happened in terms of the transformation of that relationship. So I think trying something small and asking one more question or two more questions and seeing what happens is the first place to start because it 
I, this sounds ridiculous as we talk about it, like it's so simple, but it really is transformative in terms of the knowledge you learn and the relationships you build. And so if you can get a taste of that, I think that creates momentum for trying it more. And would you encourage people to try it in low stakes situations just to start getting some confidence around this? I don't know. The older I get, I think, well, high stakes is good too. <laughs> like if I was on stage, like the high stakes situation would be like, let's say I was on stage and I, you know, in front of 1500 people and I was asked a question I didn't know the answer to feels like lower stakes would be like to say something that was not really that interesting or like to fudge some kind of answer, but higher stakes would be to say, I don't know what you mean by that. Can you tell me more about what's behind that question? Or how would it would be helpful to me if you answered that question from your point of view first, and then I'll think about mine. As long as you're genuine, I think either one works. Yeah. Well, I'm not genuine, but I'm working on it. Yes, you are. I love what you've said to me in prior conversations, which is, and I'm paraphrasing, but if I could encourage people to stay curious just a bit longer, you reveal deeper conversations, hidden behaviors, uh, motivations, and then therefore that leads to not only richer relationships, but also also richer and better deals. Yeah, Is that an accurate summary? Yes. I was just talking to someone yesterday at a tech firm who is a manager. And we were talking about this notion of discovery, like doing better discovery. And in order to do better discovery on your prospect or customer, obviously you got to stay curious and learn things. And she said, I said, tell me about discovery there. You know, like, what does it look like? Who are your reps who are doing really well? Who's not doing well? And so she started talking about some of her reps who weren't doing it well. And she says they have basically a checklist, you know, and they're just going through their checklist of the thing that they need to ask. And they don't ask the follow-up question. And they just, two things happen. They sound weird. You know, she said, don't forget there's a person on the other side of this conversation. Don't be weird. If you're asking a question, then ask your follow-up question as it relates to what you just asked. And secondly, you miss all sorts of things. If I am just my checklist of questions, because I got to sort of vet whether you're a viable customer or not, I just go down my checklist and I don't reveal actually that there might be something more I wasn't thinking about or a much bigger opportunity than I was starting to narrow in on. So staying curious more often translates into all sorts of goodness, including bigger deals. How does someone prove to a skeptical manager that being curious longer and being having richer conversations and understanding someone and putting the customer at the center, whoever your customer would be, that this will lead to just better outcomes across all categories. Well, you could read our book, Naked Sales. There's lots of examples of people being curious. And, you know, it's not just being curious and not intelligent about what you learn and follow up on. It's like being smartly curious and how that's translated literally into millions and millions of dollars. The one I just, that story I just told you about, about the Matt at a tech firm, you know, that became a three, no, sorry, a $14 million count. I'd want to say, if someone ever said to me, prove to me that being curious is going to reveal more opportunities, I would say, tell me more about your skepticism around curiosity. You know, like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's just logic. So somebody wants to get started with curiosity or build those skills with their team, you know, is there a a better approach to it with open-ended questions or 
what types of questions are going to start them on the right path? We don't want it to feel like a checklist, but a checklist is sort of a, a push in the right direction as long as you're not too prescriptive. So what types of questions are, are useful, Ashley? Well, I think certainly open-ended questions, which means you're not asking for a yes or a no. You're asking for a descriptive response. I always think of like this idea, you and I talk about this idea of just saying, tell me more or pointing something out and saying, tell me something about that or what you said about the earrings of like, I like them. And then, oh, where did you get them? That's what's called a follow-on question. You're starting to dig deeper. So I think just playing with that idea of just like, Asking for more information about whatever topic is an easy entry. Like you don't have to ask something specific. You can just say, well, can you expand on that more? Why is that meaningful to you? Or sort of these general open-ended questions. I also think just playing with it in what feels like whatever a safe space for you is, you know, whether it's at the cafe or whether it's with your child or significant other before you bring it into the business environment is a good thing to do. And then the other thing I was thinking is, there is a piece of this, if you're going to be genuinely curious, is you do have to sort of let go of the fact that you may not know where this conversation is going, right? And you have to let go of their, of that sort of control because if you're genuinely curious, then you're going to follow the person. And of course, like you said, you're going to, you have your other sort of bumper car questions that are going to, or bumper, uh, the bumpers on the side that are going to pull you back in the direction that you're, you know, you want to go at some point, but relaxing into the fact that you don't know where it's going to go is also very helpful. And then trying it out. Got it. So really just surrendering that you have to have the whole agenda. You can, it's sort of like running a, a good party. You do all the planning and prep, but then once it's go time, you have to be in the moment and, and be ready to respond. That's a great example because if everybody was having fun at your party and you're like, okay, it's uh 10. Now we're doing this. Everybody move. Now we're doing this. You'd be like, stop telling me to guiding me. We're already in the midst of a flow. What I'm getting is there, there's sort of this push pull between, you know, structuring it and having a general direction to understand someone, but also not holding on too tightly so that you're not constrained because otherwise you feel like you're just, you're, they're running a script on you and it feels awkward and, and it feels weird. I have a, another friend who teaches in the sales enablement space. And one tactic he will use is, you know, if he does need to find some, some questions out that he'll say, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask them just some general questions that I'd love to get past with you. And I'm just going to hit them really fast. And then I'd like to have a deeper conversation about X, Y, Z. And so that you're sort of getting permission from the person you're talking to, to ask some sort of what you might call qualifying questions or and get those out of the way so that then you can go deeper with them. And they, if you know, again, it's the, that's a little bit like co-creation, like get me engaged and saying yes, like, yeah, okay, I'll participate in that. Then I'm all yours. I mean, I've learned so much from you over the years I've known you, but I think it's, staying curious to reveal magic that wasn't on the menu. Totally. Absolutely. Well, I just think like you never know what's going to show up. And I don't mean to be like, oh, so rosy, but like everything's just like unicorns. But if you, I do think that there's like, there's the unknown that's always sitting out there. And for us to discover what that is together in a conversation, big or small, 
that I, I do believe that there is something waiting to be revealed. You know, if you just even think about it, the a basic level of six degrees of separation, like this idea of like, if you and I spend long enough time, or actually even more interesting, just some person I sat next to in the airport, we'd find out that we know someone in common or, or you know, there's some connection that we had no idea because we look like two random people sitting next to each other. So I think there's always something more to be revealed that is surprising and delightful and perhaps magical. I love that. There's something hidden in that magic. So what advice would you have for someone who's like a tech entrepreneur building a new product that can change the world or, uh, you know, somebody who's now a manager and they're going to be running a team of high-performing people across cultures, across time zones, across all kinds of things. What specific advice would you have for them to, you know, to enrich their customer centricity, because everyone has a customer, whether it's an internal customer, external customer, what would be some actionable things that they could do to just get started on this journey? I do think that like, for example, this idea of prototyping or experimenting, let's say experiment, I like is a better word. So for you to think if you're a manager, leader, individual, whatever, how can I experiment with this idea, this innovation, this uh, solution I'm going to think about in order to solve some problem, whatever it is, what's the smallest thing I can do to experiment with this before putting it out in the world in its full form so that I can get feedback? In teaching design thinking, that seems to be actually a hard thing for people to figure out because they over-engineer that experiment versus an experiment could be, I'm just going to write a couple things that I'm thinking about in terms of the solution on a piece of paper. I'm going to give it to you and get your feedback. I'm going to, if it's a, if it's a uh, new iPhone, I'm just going to create a cardboard cutout of the, some of the things and some of the features I'm thinking about for this iPhone. I'm going to give it to you and get your feedback. So I do think this idea of figuring out what is the lowest fidelity way uh, or experimentation with what you want to put out in the world that you can create in order to get a piece of feedback is one thing that I would suggest people start to think about. Well, I think there's a real value. You know, I have these post-it notes all over, but post-it notes, it's funny. Everyone has them. They're ubiquitous. One of the things that's the best about them is the weak glue on the back, because there's a beauty in presenting someone something that is half formed. And this goes back to co-creation where I'm saying, you know, Ashley, I have some ideas that I think would enrich our team. Here they are. If you see them in a, in a medium that doesn't feel overly cooked. Exactly. You're going to participate with me. All right. So two more questions. So is there anything I didn't ask you about that would have been useful to touch on or something that is of interest to you that you would want to share? Well, I'll say one of the things that seems to be most useful and interesting to the sales teams that we work with, and I think this is applicable in all different places, is this notion of understanding two things about your end user. Let's say your end user is an entity, like you're you're working for a corporation. This idea of what are their big bets, their big macro priorities, understanding that, and then understanding, okay, who are the end users that they care about and we might care about? They might be internal people, and I'll give you a real example, or they might be external customers. And then figuring out how you can sort of connect the dots and see the relationship between those two so for example, talking to a security firm yesterday, like a tech security, cybersecurity, and they were talking about the fact that Gallagher, which is an insurance firm, was one of their customers. 
So the rep was smart enough to realize that if he just talked sort of cybersecurity, he would only be talking at one level. But if he started to talk about their big bets, and one of the big bets is they they grow through acquisition. And when they and they had had a threat a couple of years ago, and their shareholders had said, we're not going to basically allow you to continue acquiring companies because there's a security risk. So he his conversation then went at this macro priority level, which is, I know you, Gallagher, care about growth. Your growth through comes through safe acquisition or acquisition and your reduction in security risk is related to your ability to acquire. So he oriented the conversation towards that big bet, which is for anyone, like what we want to do is right thinking about the aspiration of the individual or the company and relating what we're talking about to it. And then the end user piece is understanding who were the end users, in this case, internal to Gallagher, who would be using the software and what did they care about? The security analyst, the tech team, the technical leader, and getting really close to them enough so he could talk about the relationship between what they cared about and his services such that he could connect the dots there. Like that's very powerful for any of us to be able to talk at both levels once we have an understanding of sort of the big bet and then the end users and what they care about. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's understanding where they want to go, but also who has to use the tools to get there. Exactly. And that is not, that's a differentiator. Most people don't, either they think like that, but they don't actually do the research to understand what those two really are. So it's a, it is a game changer in your conversations if you can talk at both of those levels. Wow. Well, we just found some magic in here that is like just wonderful to hear. Take that out for a spin. I love it. So my last question to you, Ashley, if you were to give one you know, piece of advice or inspiration to people who are listening to this, whether they're, you know, wrestling with co-creation or curiosity or thinking about big bets and end users, what would you say to them? You know, we were talking about magic a little bit. I always think there is magic in these end user stories. And the magic comes from like, if I can get close to my end user, whoever that might be, or my customer and get real stories about them, that transforms me, right? All of a sudden I care differently about them and the corporation. And it transforms my conversations with other people because I can reference that story that's real and it creates credibility for me. I'll just end with one story. This is actually about Matt as well. He was a young seller at the time. He was working with Ashley's Furniture, nothing to do with me. And we had said, you know, like go in, like have an experience as a buyer there, as a customer. So he did. He got all sorts of information about colors and what did and did not work when you're picking out furniture. He then got a meeting with a leader there. And the first thing out of the leader's mouth was, you look like the age of my son, which obviously is sort of a downer when you hear that. And so sort of Matt took it in stride. And then he said, you know, I'd love to share with you a couple of things that I experienced when I was in your store. And he started to share all these things and the guy was blown away. And all of a sudden they could have a sort of mutual conversation because he was really sort of proving that he cared about him and his organization and was, was sharing things that this leader didn't even know. And so what it did is it, it increased his credibility in the eyes of that leader. So I think those end user stories or experiences do all sorts of magic for you in your conversations. 
one of the things I got from that story, and thank you for sharing that, is that you can really build credibility through putting yourself in that empathetic point of view of experiencing you know, the product or service through a critical eye in, in, in a way of gathering insights and, and making observations. Yes, for sure. Like that's why I was saying like there's magic in this because it gives you all sorts of things, including credibility when you have those end user insights and understanding of motivations or, you know, just what's happening on the ground. There's a book that came out called Messengers. And they basically say that to be a good communicator, helping teams communicate effectively you have to have two things. You have to have warmth and credibility. Mm-hmm. And so warmth is, of course, showing you know that you care, but credibility, you can build your own data set by collecting insights from your own experience. Absolutely. And in this case that I just mentioned, you know, everybody likes to hear about themselves, right? Well, Ashley, this was a beautiful and inspiring and fun conversation as always with you. And it was just a pleasure to speak with you. So what is the best place for all the listeners to go to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, I'd say our website, somersaultinnovation.com and somersault, check your spelling, is S-O-M-E-R-S-A-U-L-T, innovation with no S or LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Ashley Welch at Somersault Innovation. Ashley, thank you so much for being on Stand Up to Stand Out. I look forward to seeing you soon and uh, I can't wait to, to reconnect very shortly. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I urge you to check out influencedna.co and find the podcast page where you can find show notes, links to the guests, extra resources, and a whole lot more. Also, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and make sure to sign up for our mailing list. If you have questions about the show or comments about how we can improve it, drop us a line. I will read every single message. That's podcast at influencedna.co. If you like what you heard, I'd say leave us a five-star review. And if you hated what you heard, leave us a six-star review. Either way, we're not stopping. See you on the next show.